Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, where the shapers of business come together with the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. And my guest today is Georgie Huddart, co-founder of British swimwear brand Hunza G. Georgie was 18 when she fell for the original stretch fabric of clothing brand Hunza. And I've read up a ball about this stretchy thing, which is obviously a bit alien to me, but I'm finding out more very shortly. It was no longer a brand in production, but famous for designing Julia Roberts' cut-out mini-dress in Pretty Woman, one of my favourite films. Georgie's fixation with Hunza continued as she began her fashion career, hunting down their signature fabric to make into new styles from dresses to low-rise swimsuits. And in 2015, after a chance meeting with Peter Meadows, the founder of Hunza himself, Georgie took him, as she says, a Sainsbury's plastic bag filled with my samples. And that's how Hunza G began. Relaunching the company together, aiming to bring its sporty fabric into a modern setting, their brand is now stocked at every major luxury retailer, with all pieces produced to order in England, with sustainability, they say, their number one conversation. Did you, when you met Peter, and that brand was around from the 80s, did you think, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to set up my own business with this man? Or did you think, it's really good to meet this guy because I really love the fabric and that? What was going through your mind then? Oh, no, I I was intent on setting up the business with him. I tried to do it on my own and it was very hard to find the fabric or get the fabric made it's made on very old fashioned machines that don't exist anymore which is why it's very hard to have it copied so he was like my knight in shining armor i've been looking for him for a long time so i was really intent on on starting the company he said that he thought he wasn't sure whether anyone would be interested in it because he'd already done it once before and he'd seen it peak and he said that he was happy to give it a go but yeah, to do it for a bit of fun. He said that it'd be a fun ride. And why were you so intent? Because you you'd been doing a bunch of stuff before then and obviously interested in art history at university. Uh, a very tough and challenging uh, time. Many hours yeah. in the, many <laughs> many hours hours in the lecture theatre. Many hours in the library. Um, yeah. No, but then I imagine you have appreciation for art, for culture, for fabric, for all the sorts of the intricacies yeah. of the history of art, which is actually really fascinating and, of course, then informs the way that a person who thinks in a creative way might pull together various yeah. things going forward. But what got you to the point where you're going, I'm now going to do this? I think I just thought it was a really... I couldn't understand why nobody had made anything in that fabric. It's a one-size, incredibly flattering, textured, unique, really tactile fabric that looks great on all different shaped women. And it just seemed like a no-brainer. I couldn't fathom why it had been around and then nobody else had done it. It had not been in existence for about 20 years. And I had a few old pieces I'd bought loads off eBay and then I'd managed to get hold of a bit of the fabric, made some samples in it. And every time I wore it, the reaction to it was so positive. All different aged women, some some finding it really nostalgic because they'd had dresses from the 80s or swimwear from the 80s or people remembered their mother wearing it in the 80s or people had little baby swimming costumes in the 80s. So I just knew that it was something that people would want. And once you met... Did you think on that first meeting, yeah, this is going to work or, okay, I'm really pleased I've met, but 
what happens next? No, I thought it was going to work, but I didn't think it would necessarily become like a global brand or I mean it's it's exceeded all expectations but I I knew that there would be people who wanted it but that you know so at at that point it was just people who I knew it wasn't random people it was friends and family and I thought and I wanted to make it for myself you know it's something I would wear which is always like a good way to start a business if you strongly believe in it so I think I was just excited to be able to design a whole load of things that I could wear with my friends to festivals and things like that. And then obviously it's ended up being much bigger than that. But that was kind of the starting point. You know when you're about to start something and you you know you want to do it, but you don't necessarily know what that means. Did you quite quickly learn about production and about sourcing and about pricing and about distribution and about margin and all these things that come very quickly to a young business? And if so, how did you learn and how quickly did you learn? And were there moments at the beginning where you went, oh, I love the idea, but the reality is a bit different? I had Peter, which was a real help, but also I did learn really quickly and I learned on the job, which is the best way to do it. I definitely probably made some mistakes, none of them catastrophic. But again, we we started very quietly. So there was a lot of room to kind of get to grips with stuff. And because we developed as a sort of, we get called, you know, one of the Instagram brands where we didn't put any money into marketing. It was all very organic it felt very easy and unpressured and natural. And that was a real luxury for me. I'm not saying that every business starts like that, but I wasn't having to sit with sort of board members putting business plans together, you know, being really hot on the numbers. There was room for for adjustment and learning and development, which was one of the real pros about starting it in such an organic way. Did you have any reference points in your own life of people that had gone and done this, people that had set their own businesses up and gone through that, you know, the giving birth to a new business? No, not really. I do now. I I had a lot of friends who who are creatives and people who I looked to who had said, I, you know, I'd worked in creative industries. So I did have a lot of really helpful people that I could call upon to ask questions, but I didn't have a like for like similar thing. I didn't have many friends at that stage who had brands. I have more now. And also each brand is really different and each company is very different. But yeah, I had a good network of people who who were really helpful and I could pick up the phone and ask Mm. them a question, but no like for likes. And in terms of your friends at the time who weren't in business and stuff, do you think they were going, yeah, Georgie's just, you know, she's away with the fairies. She's got, you know, or, or do you think they were saying, I'm not surprised that you're doing your own thing? Um, no, I think a lot of people said that they always thought that I would do my own thing. But then I, I had one friend who said, oh, this sounds like a great idea. Terrible name, though. Got to change the name of that guy. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, I think it's a really good name. I think it's kind of unusual. It's not too literal. It doesn't mean anything hugely, but it also means a lot to people who remember it from the 80s. So it's nostalgic and heritage. And then just for kind of narcissistic reasons, I slipped in the G at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. But, but the the friends that said, I always knew you'd do that, what was it about Georgie growing up then that they saw in you that would say to them, of course she's going to run her own thing? I mean, at the point where I started working with Peter, I was working with a friend doing interiors. I had never really had a job where I 
sat behind a desk all day. They were always quite creative jobs. And I, I always worked quite hard. I always had it together in that sense. Like I, I changed jobs a bit, but I always had a sort of vague direction. I'd always worked quite hard from the age of 16. I did lots of internships. I worked every summer. I just had always had quite a drive to work. And I'm the eldest. So like I said, it's probably a slight tyrant. So maybe it was like the concept that I didn't necessarily want to work for other people, but I had worked for other people and really enjoyed it. I think, I think I was just ready to do something on my own. The eldest of five, is that right? Eldest of six. Six. It's a bit of inflation for you. <laughs> Stay with me for much more from my business shaper. It's Georgie Huddard talking about Hunza G, which I think is quite a cool name actually, because again, it doesn't, Thank as you, you said, it doesn't mean anything. It's whatever you want to confer on it. That's what it's going to mean. She's coming back with me for much more about the story of her and her business in a couple of minutes. But right now we're going to hear a taste from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all of the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Dere's Susie Sendama and Emily Dorotheo talk about how fashion brands can be more sustainable while maintaining profitability and what consumers should be doing to support sustainable fashion. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. It seems that for some consumers and some retailers, it's all about price. How can clothing brands maintain profitability, but have an ethical supply chain at the same time? It's a really difficult question. And I I sympathize so much with brands on this, because like you say, I think consumers are predominantly driven by price simply because we've enjoyed low prices for so long. I mean, the stark reality is, is that it's it's extremely difficult to sell something for three pounds when the UK minimum wage is eight pounds 72 um, in order to make that maths work. Someone elsewhere in the supply chain ha- has got to be suffering, I think. I think a united approach is needed from the industry simply because if you have a proportion of the the fashion sector that is deciding to pay people fairly, inevitably they're going to have to increase their prices to sort of to make up for that. And then you might have a divergence where some are paying people fairly and have increased prices and you have others that might not be taking that path and they're more competitively priced. I mean, the things that brands can do in terms of improving their supply chain and making sure that there are no modern slavery occurrences in their supply chain is to have a real understanding of what goes on. And that can be achieved by conducting risk assessments and supply chain audits. So you know exactly where the risks are sitting. You know, do you know whether the factory workers are being paid minimum wage? Is there a way for the factory workers to easily raise grievances with brands? And that's definitely something that we at Mishcon can can help brands do. We've got an exceptional experience in the retail sector. And we've recently launched a, a new part of our business called Mishcon Purpose, which helps clients plan for a more sustainable business. The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you have a smart speaker, you can ask it to play Jazz Shapers and there you'll find a taster of our recent shows. But back to today, the main event, it's Georgie Huddard, co-founder of swimwear brand Hunza G. So the business gets going, and in those early days, you mentioned Instagram, now you're 300,000 plus people that are following you on Instagram, followers, that was the word I was looking for there. Followers. Followers, yeah. that's the, the parlance here, yes, very good. If you'd have opened a shop 
and there was no internet and you'd been, you know, somewhere in the centre of London, I imagine that would have been a very different experience for you, but there would have been the lack of the... I mean, you must have felt quite connected in a funny kind of way, even though it was digital, to this audience that was growing, to this audience that was saying, we really love this stuff, that was starting to share it, starting to talk about it. How did you harness all of that goodwill in the beginning? Did it give you... I mean, what did it give you? That's my question. I think the amazing thing about social media, I mean, there are loads of pros to it and loads of cons, obviously, is that the feedback is really clear. You communicate with people really clearly. You know, having a shop is great, but the person's not going to buy your swimwear and then come back to the shop to tell you whether it fit perfectly or whether they think there could have been an adjustment made or whether they thought that, you know, this element of it worked, but this other element of it didn't work or are you ever going to do it in this colour? You know, that doesn't happen. Whereas with social media, it was kind of amazing. We were able to take all the information that we got from customers or followers saying, you know, next season, do you think you'll do this colour? I really like this shape or like, I think the cut's a little bit high on the blah, blah, blah. Do you think you're ever going to do a a longer body shape? And took all that information and tried to build a really strong collection of pieces that would work for most women, as many women as, yeah. And and, and that was, that was, that's an incredible tool to have at your hands. It almost sounds like they're an extension of the creative department. They were kind of saying, what about, what about? A hundred percent. And then any negative feedback, you know, is always really helpful. And being able to communicate again directly with people if they think that, you know, the experience in some way could have been better. I mean, that's an incredible thing. Yeah, an incredible thing to be able to, to utilize. And in those early days or years... Was it quite hand-to-mouth in terms of having enough money to go and explore different variants, different parts of the range? The reason I ask is I was speaking, we interviewed Adam Brown of All of Our Brown, and he was saying it was really bootstrapping for quite a while before he ever got other investors involved and before the scale thing happens. And you've talked about scaling as well. Did it feel tricky at the beginning, or were you always confident at some point you would get some serious critical mass? I think what we did, which worked for us, which I often suggest to people when they start businesses, is we just didn't spend a crazy amount to begin with. We did kind of a soft launch. You know, we didn't spend tons and tons of money on a website. Instagram doesn't cost anything. We did relatively inexpensive shoots and we just kind of tried to work out who we were and what we were before we were throwing tons of money around on branding and things like that. And that works for some people and other people, you know, they need to do that in order to get it off the ground. They need to invest a whole load of money into it because that's what it needs. But for us, we didn't need that. So it was quite tight. But like I said, we were doing it really organically. We were just kind of seeing what people liked, how it worked, what the feedback was. It was more of a sort of like interactive thing with customers to begin with. And then I would say about a year and a half, two years in, we started to get serious orders from wholesale clients. And that's when we sort of really pumped a bit more money back into it. Tell me about the people and when you made your first hire and your second and your third You talked about actually being comfortable working for other people because you've done that, but actually it's quite nice running your own show as well. Mm -hmm. What's it like when you're running your own show and then you've got human beings who you're paying, who have, you know, lives to lead and all that? Did it change you without sounding sort of religious about it? Yeah, I think the first, you know, that I would say has been one of the most interesting learning experiences for me is being a boss. And I was probably not 
that good at it to begin with. And just by that, I mean, you know, making sure that you communicate really clearly. I was quite relaxed. And so I was always like, yeah, just get on with your own thing and didn't provide much, much structure in the beginning. And then obviously, as we grew, that became more and more important. And I had to really sort of focus and think about how team meetings would work and HR and communicating with people, doing reviews with people, all those things that had never really crossed my mind, which is a job in itself. And feeling responsible, like you said, for for people's lives, because it's their rent, it's their living, it's everything. I'm really lucky I've got an amazing team of girls who've just been incredible. But yeah, it's a difficult thing. Finding the right people is really hard. Interviewing people is is long sometimes you get it right sometimes you get it wrong sometimes people are right for the job sometimes they're not but overall it's been a really positive experience is there a type that you have hired in terms of their their values or their characteristics do you think we've got a really diverse range of people at Hansa but I would say the kind of overriding characteristic is enthusiasm for the brand like you need to have people who really believe in it and who are really good at their job. But if it's a startup, you need people who, who feel emotionally involved and really want to give it their all. And I think we've got that with everybody who works there. Yeah. I, I, I half joked about the fabric and obviously the fact that I'm a man versus a woman makes no difference. I've met some incredible people here that make jewellery or they're in the fashion business and it's genuinely fascinating. We talked about the tactile nature of this material. Do you want each of your team to also kind of lose themselves in it and get into it to the point where, you know, they're in flow and they're just going, what about, what about? Or are you more protective about who has the creative leadership in this business? I do most of the creative stuff solo, but I involve everybody, if that makes sense. So I don't have a design team at Hansa. I do all the designing. I have a really great person who helps me CAD it all up called Amelia. But I get everybody's opinion on whether they think that styles that I've designed are are right or whether they like them and everybody tries them on because they're, like I said, a diverse range of women, which is our customer. It's not, it's not supposed to be a specific woman. It's supposed to be different ages, different body shapes. And so, yeah, I try it out on, on all of them and the feedback is so helpful. I mean, you say, you know, different women and all that. You also happen to, and I, and I always find the celebrity thing fascinating, you happen yeah. to have a fair few celebrities who wear yeah. your stuff. Is that a double-edged sword or do you just go more the merrier? I think it's great. Again, that's been relatively organic. We didn't gift very much in the beginning. We make everything in the UK, so we didn't have huge budgets for gifting stuff. And also... I think it gives it a bit more of a real feel if it's not like lots of influencers posting because they've been given a free swimming costume. But yeah, we do have lots of celebrities, which I'm really lucky about. In a way, it could be a double-edged sword because you don't want the average person to not feel like they can relate to the brand, which is why we try and make sure that there's like a good mix of, of, of both. But at the same time, obviously, if someone famous <laughs> is wearing it and you want to aspire to be that person, well then... At the same time, yeah, if Rosie Huntington-Whiteley or any yeah. of those sort of women want You're to wear it, happy. then we're, we're relatively happy with that. <laughs> yeah. Stay with me for much more. Actually, it's my final chat with my relatively happy uh, business shaper today. She's very happy. Georgie Huddard, she's my business shaper. We've also got Hugh Masakela and his particular magic to put a smile on your face. That's all coming up in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. 
in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just for a few more minutes, Georgie Huddard is my business shaper. We've been talking about the business of Hunza G and of swimwear. We touched a little bit on making and you talked about the CAD drawings and you talked about the, the, the creative process. One of the things that's really important to you is the sustainability piece mm-hmm. and is also the charitable bit. I was reading about the fact that a percentage of your gross profit goes to Street Smart, I think, one of the charities you support and you look at how sustainable you can be. Was this pre, and you can, you can lie to me or be honest if you like, you seem like a pretty straight shooter, was your own belief in the sustainability thing already there or has this been a, I can't reset really up a fashion business now without being sustainable? Interesting because we, we, we were one of the sort of first one-size-fit British-made sustainable brands because this was before sustainability was the number one conversation. So it was much more unusual than it is now. Everyone's, you know, moving to or is sustainable now, but this was seven years ago. And I have to say that predominantly came from Peter and I didn't know much about it and I was very into the idea and... It was like a, a natural a natural way to begin, but it was Peter is very environmentally conscious and he wanted it to be sustainable and I said, that sounds great. And what does sustainable mean for you in, in the supply chain and the process? So it's developing more and more, but in the beginning it meant that everything was produced in the UK, which is ethical and sustainable. We, we did used to make to order, which meant there was no stock, so no waste. We now can't make to order, but we sell out. So we make stock of our best sellers and then we make very small quantities of our slower sellers. We use all the old fabric to make the scrunchies. And then last year we became carbon neutral, which was really exciting. So we used a company to do due diligence on on us as a brand, how, you know, down to the smallest things, how everyone gets to work, whether people are vegetarians or not, you know, to, to offset our carbon footprint. And that was really exciting. We have a thing at work called Conscious Club where we meet and we chat about everything in the office so there's no plastic in the office. On Mondays, it's meat-free days. I mean, you know, it's everything. It's it's for us more about a kind of mindset. Obviously, we're not going to change the world by not eating meat on Mondays, but it's getting everybody into the same sort of mindset. Everything we use is recyclable packaging. I mean, you say it's not going to change the world, but if no one does it, then nothing changes, right? So if you're doing your bit and it's in the DNA of the business, then that, that is going to make a difference, I'm sure. Yeah. And the fact, I, li- I like the fact that it was seven years ago, and you're right, there wasn't... If you talked about sustainability in the boardroom, people were like, yeah, yeah, sure. Whereas yeah. now, you, it is possibly the number one point around, well, what are your ESG credentials? So I think, I think that's fab. And for you, now that you're seven years in, and you've brought the baby of Hunziji into the world, and now here it is, and it's growing up, and it's, it's pretty well known very well known and it's in the nice places and you know you look and you must go wow or do you just say no 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 I'm only a couple of chapters into this story and we've got a long way to go um I say both I say wow and also we're only a couple of chapters into the story (laughs) we've got a long way to go and that's the hope but who knows sustaining a brand I think is Sustaining anything is more difficult potentially than the climb and keeping people interested and being engaging and keeping current. But I hope that, yeah, this is the the beginning of many more chapters. And in terms of the next chapter, the next few years, if if there was a headline for the chapter, what would the headline be? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question. I think we just want to continue to make 
products and we probably will move into we've got there are a few ideas in the pipeline but one size fit products for women that make them feel great that are comfortable flattering and within a relatively reasonable price point made in the UK that's a long long heading it's a long headline but it's <laughs> it's your book so you can write what you like and um, it's you've covered the bases i know what i know exactly that but that's very clear <laughs> yeah, that was long. Um, but yeah, that is... That is that is what it is. That is what it is, yeah. Good luck delivering that is what it is. <laughs> um, it's been lovely to chat to you. You too. And congratulations. Thank you. On everything that you've achieved so far. Thank you so much. And things that are to come. Uh, just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Um, it's Stan Getz, the girl from Ipanema. This is just a song that I've always found really nostalgic. My parents played it a lot when I was younger. My grandparents used to occasionally play it. Just love it. Stan Getz and Jorge Gilberto and the girl from Ipanema, the song choice of my business shaper today, Georgie Huddard. She talked about growing organically, having a sense of who you are and what you do and who you serve before you start investing huge amounts of money. She talked about hiring people that were enthusiastic, that are really into what they do because that's absolutely what you need in a young business. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers. <laughs>